Well, good morning, everybody. I'm uh, Paul Graham, uh, lead pastor here, if you don't know me. And we're going through a series on Galatians this morning. We're going to be in Galatians chapter 2. And uh, we will be uh, verses 11 on, roughly. Um, not doing all of the end of chapter, or last half of chapter 2. We're just going to do part of it. But it's interesting the sort of comments that were on the stage this morning, just talking about Pastor Smith and um, how he lived out. He knew the scripture, but he lived it out. And it's actually, that's really what we're going to be talking about today as we look in the verses that we're looking at in Galatians. Because, I mean, I don't know if, if any of you have ever said this before, um, but maybe you have said, uh, maybe to another person or to someone that you're coaching or to uh, maybe your children, do as I say, not as I do. Anybody ever said that before? Just do as I say, not as I do. But it sounds like Pastor Smith, you could do as he said or as he did, because he said what he did and he did what he said, uh, which is how we should be, right? And it's, that phrase is interesting because it addresses the relationship between our worldview or our belief in what we think is true and right versus action. And it's an interesting phrase because the purpose of that phrase is to try to divorce what we believe and what we think is right from maybe how we act and and separate them from each other. And that phrase is usually used in a somewhat sort of whimsical way. We we use it to try and sort of slyly pass off our own hypocrisy uh, that we say things that might be different than what we do, especially to our children, and we try not to feel too guilty about it. You know, it's, it's the coach telling his team to run 20 laps while he eats a bag of Doritos on the bench. Um, you know, it's the parents telling the kids to hurry up and get ready and get in the car while they stand on the porch and talk for another 20 minutes uh, before going. You know, do what I teach you to do or do what I say because it follows what I believe, but don't do what I do because I may act in ways that contradict myself. And that's what Galatians chapter 2 is really about. If, if we share the same gospel, if we say that we are teaching the same things and believe the same things, then we should act the same way as well. We should say what we believe and do what we say. And that idea is summed up by Paul twice in this chapter with the little phrase, which he calls the truth of the gospel. Do we follow the truth of the gospel? And you'll notice that phrase. He used it last week in the middle of a description of that theological debate that we talked about where he went up to Jerusalem to make sure that he actually did believe the same gospel as the rest of the apostles and that everybody was on the same page. In Galatians 2.5, he says, We did not give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might remain with you or might be preserved for you. And then it's that same phrase he uses in the middle of his dispute with Peter um, in terms of his behavior in Antioch, which we're going to look at today. Later on now in Galatians 2.14, part of our text today, Paul's going to say, when I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter in front of them all, and he goes on to rebuke Peter. And so this phrase, the truth of the gospel, is both a theological issue and a practical issue. It's not just, you know, Peter and Paul and James and John in Jerusalem having a theological debate about the truth of the gospel. It's not just a theological thing. It's a behavioral thing. It's about how we are to act in line with the truth of the gospel. In other words, not just do as I say, but not as I do. We have to say and do the truth of the gospel. 
And that's really what this passage is about tonight and today. It's the importance of the gospel, the truth of the gospel, not just in what we believe, but also in how we act, not just in the big sins. And it's easy for us to focus on those. It's easy for us to think that because of the gospel and because we've come to Christ and because we're now believers, I understand that, you know, I'm going to give up my addictions. I'm going to, you know, focus on my marriage and behave properly as a husband and a father. And I'm going to give up these other idols in my life that I use to distract or to cope with the stress of life. And I'm going to put my affection and my treasure on Jesus. And, and we get that big picture. But it's not just the big things that we have to do as we say, but it's in the everyday way in which we live. Like where we set down our tray and eat in the cafeteria ultimately reflects on whether we are living out the truth of the gospel. And that's what Paul's going to address today. The truth of the gospel in our behavior is a matter of mature gospel application. That It's how the gospel comes out into our world and it's breaking down all these old errors and these old barriers and these old indignities and old hostilities and old abuses in our life. The gospel wants to do away with all of those things. And it wants to lead us as God's people, not just away from the big sort of obvious sins of our past, but it wants to lead us into living in every way under the light and truth of the gospel. And so verses 1 to 10 in, in, in Galatians chapter 2 are the sort of the theological debate. It's what we say. And then Paul moves into a practical example of the truth of the gospel in action in terms of what we do. And so we'll be looking at verses 11 to 16, and I'll just pray before we begin. Father God, we're going to look into your word now, and I pray that as we do, you would illuminate them, that by your Holy Spirit, our hearts and our minds would be open to understand your scripture in a way that we've not seen it before. And Father, that through that, our lives would be transformed, that we would not leave here the same way that we came in, and that we would just be moved along in our relationship with you or moved towards a relationship with you. Here we are, Lord. Meet us where we are. In Christ's name, amen. All right, Galatians 2, 11 to 16. You can open in your Bibles there. If you haven't brought a Bible, there should be one near you in the seat back, uh, or tap there in your phone, whichever you prefer. When Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he was clearly in the wrong. Before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in this hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. And when I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter in front of them all, You are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? We who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners know that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by observing the law, because by observing the law, no one will be justified. And this is a really remarkable passage, right? These are apostles arguing in public. And and we know there was lots of disputes in the church. The churches of Galatia and Corinthians and um, 
of Rome that Paul writes to, we know there were lots of disputes in those churches. They were a church just like our own. People got into their little you know, grievances and had arguments about what they thought about this or that. And Paul's writing uh, many of these letters to the churches because there were disputes. There were cases for discipline. But that was among the members. I mean, that's sort of to be expected that there's going to be disputes when you get a few hundred people or a few thousand people together. There's going to be arguments. But in this text, what we have is an argument between two leaders of the whole church. These are apostles. Apparently, this argument is taking place essentially right in the middle of a church potluck dinner because it's about where Peter is going to sit to eat and Paul confronts him to his face. So you can imagine being gathered for a church dinner and maybe I get into a loud confrontation with Steve Archibald, right? And we're both pretty loud. And so he's in my face and I'm in his face and you guys are just trying to awkwardly eat your dinner while Steve and I are, you know, dealing it with each other right there in the middle of the church, you know? And it seems to be over where I chose to sit or where he chose to sit. And so you're sitting there thinking, why is this a big deal? Just let the man sit wherever he wants to sit so I can enjoy my meatballs on rice. (laughs) Why is it a big deal, right? Why is Paul making a scene over this? What felony has Peter committed here at the dinner table that gets Paul this riled up? Now, Paul here, the Apostle Paul, is riled up because how we behave has fundamental implications about what we really believe. And even more importantly here, our actions are speaking louder than our words. In other words, how we behave communicates to other people the consistency or the quality of what it is that we believe. And so there's two things that Paul teaches from this incident. The first one is about justification, about how we are justified or how we're qualified or how we stand rightly before God. And and we're going to get more into that next week, okay? I'm not going to deal with that as much this week, but that's one of the things definitely he wants to teach here. And the other thing he wants to talk about or teach here is application. It's the application of the gospel, how we should live according to the gospel that apparently we all agree on. Because I, you know, Paul just mentioned this council at Jerusalem where he and James and Peter and John all extended the right hand of fellowship to each other and agreed that they understood what the gospel meant. And Paul isn't seeing that gospel applied. And so to see these two things as Paul would have us see them, we need to deconstruct this crime scene, so to speak. You know, Paul sees it as a crime against the gospel and he's making a big deal out of this issue in front of the whole church. And there's lots of clues here. There's sort of a smattering of evidence. There's several parties that are involved that we're going to have to sort of interview or get a background on. And there's some witnesses. And so as we go into this text, we kind of you know, flip our notepad open and we start gathering information on this. We've got Peter. You know, the, the, the people involved here are Peter. There are certain men from James. There are the Gentiles. There are those who belong to the circumcision group. There are other Jews and Barnabas. And so we've got to go through this now and sort of understand what's gone on with all of these people that's taken place here. And so the first one is Cephas, or other, otherwise known as Peter. Peter and Cephas are the same person, and Paul uses his different names interchangeably. And many of you will remember, I mean, I hope that you do, that Peter has always had a bit of a struggle in this particular area of clinging to the old law and his Jewishness 
up and against other people's Gentileness or non-Jewishness. But the Cornelius events in Acts chapter 10 have already sorted these things out for Peter in the past. You know, after Peter had started his ministry of preaching the gospel of God and had God had come along and had given him a little bit of help in letting go of those old traditions. And God did this for Peter by giving him a vision and a task to do back in Acts chapter 10. God had Peter dream a dream three times about a sheet coming down from heaven. You're remembering this? And this sheet coming down from heaven was filled with bacon. Okay, not just bacon, right? That was my dream that I had last night. But this, this sheet coming down from heaven was filled with unclean foods or unclean animals for the Jewish people, things that by the law they were not allowed to eat. All kinds of animals that the law would call unclean. And in the dream, God told Peter to eat. And Peter, three times, typical Peter, refused to eat. Even though God told him to three times. And God told him three times to stop arguing. And I'm paraphrasing there. You can go back and read it for yourself. But then God has Peter brought by some men to the house of Cornelius, who's a Gentile, who wants to hear the gospel. And God shows Peter the Holy Spirit falling on this household, and Peter gets it. He has that aha moment that Gentiles can believe, and Gentiles can not only believe, but they can receive the Holy Spirit, and they are full participants in God's kingdom. And God effectively says, look, I can make Gentile food clean, and I can make Gentiles clean. Okay, Peter, do you get it? Gentiles are clean. They're part of us. And now Jesus had already taught Peter this. He'd already taught the disciples this in Mark 7, and he says it again in Matthew 15, or there's another account of it in Matthew 15. He says, Jesus speaking, says, nothing outside of a man can make him unclean by going into him. Rather, it is what comes out of a man that makes him unclean. And But even though Peter had already been taught this by Jesus, you know, a lot of what Jesus taught the disciples, the disciples didn't actually get at the time, Right? The disciples may have nodded wisely and stroked their beards and looked at Jesus very sagely, but they weren't getting it, right? They didn't learn what it was that Jesus was teaching them. It was going over their heads until the Holy Spirit came and they could start perceiving things of the Spirit. And there's an application there for us, right? Like, we are all the same. You and I, we can sit under the teaching of Jesus and we can sit under the teaching of Scripture for years And some of it can just go right over our heads. Year upon year upon year, that scripture can just go right over our heads and we'll miss it. And it remains unapplied to our life because we don't see the connection until finally God spells it out for us the third time or the 30th time and we finally get that aha moment that Peter got with the dream and with Cornelius. He finally understood what Jesus was teaching him you know, a year or two ago. And the Apostle Paul wants us to have that aha moment here about what the gospel means when it comes to how we live and act. Sometimes we don't realize what the implications of our faith is, even and especially at the superficial level. Right? As I said, we get the dramatic changes. We understand that we're supposed to behave in a Christian way and that you know God wants us to clean up certain areas of our life and, and that it's healthy for us to do that and it shows that we treasure Christ and that you know that there are, are things that we need to do to... Um, to to get our lives in order as believers in the gospel. But what we miss a lot of times 
is the importance of the little things, the little things that we think are superficial, that we don't think are important, but they are important. Paul would argue that the truth of the gospel bears on everything in our lives, not just on the big things, but on everything. But getting back to Peter, okay? So then in Acts chapter 11, Peter has this moment. He should know this. He knows that Gentiles are clean. Peter actually goes to Jerusalem and runs into hostility over this trip that he took to see Cornelius because the men of the circumcision are upset that he was eating with Gentiles. In Acts 11, 2 to 4, it says, So when Peter went up to Jerusalem... The circumcised believers criticized him and they said, you went into the house of uncircumcised men and ate with them. And Peter began and explained everything to them precisely as it had happened. This is ironic, right? Because Peter's already been through all this and he's had this argument in Jerusalem with those of the circumcision party. And Peter goes on to report to these Jewish believers who are apparently very skeptical. It says in 11.18 that after Peter gets done his big argument, it says they fell silent after hearing this. You imagine Peter, right? It's just crickets. He gets done and no answer. But then they get on board. Then a majority seem to accept this news with joy and they praise God for it. And, and what we don't see here or what we don't discover here is that not all of them are fully convinced, right? There's some skeptics remaining who may be willing to allow Gentiles into the faith, but only on conditions of what they eat and how they behave and whether they're circumcised. And as it turns out, this may still be an old belief of Peter's as well, that he's not fully free of himself. Because as we come back to now Galatians chapter 2, we find out in 2.11 that when Peter is away from Jerusalem and he's in Antioch, he is happy to eat with Gentiles in their church suppers. When he's not with the Jewish people majority in Jerusalem and he's in Antioch, he's eating with the Gentiles. He's eating whatever they eat. He's sitting at the table with them. He's breaking bread with them. But then another group shows up. There's other people who come, and it says certain men from James. And James is a key part of the church leadership in Jerusalem. And so this phrase is important. It's not just certain men from Jerusalem that come, but certain men from James. And there may be a connotation here that they came with a message. They came on purpose on behalf of James. And after these guys show up, Peter starts acting differently. These guys from James come, and Peter changes and then the other people that we have to consider are the gentiles the church at antioch is probably mostly gentile right it's not mainly jewish and they're the people that peter was gladly eating with for most of his visit and it would normally be considered unclean to eat with gentiles if you were a jew because you have to understand in their time and in their culture that to sit down and share a meal with somebody or to break bread with somebody was to essentially By sharing that meal, you were sharing in essence with each other. Because I ate of that loaf and you ate of that loaf, we are now, in a sense, one. So there's a a way in which, in that culture, that to break bread or to eat with another person was to bind yourself to them. And so Jewish people would not eat with Gentiles. They would not eat of the same pot or the same meal or sit at the same table with Gentiles for fear of being made unclean by them. But Peter was happy to do this. Peter was gladly eat with these people in Antioch. And Peter had been accused of eating with Gentiles back during the Cornelius episode, and he'd explained that it was fine, and Peter knew it was fine. But that old, ugly, hurtful animosity had no place in the life of Peter, rightly so. In the truth of the gospel, the idea that you would be made unclean by eating with another person 
cannot be tolerated. And Peter knew this. Peter knew that that couldn't have a place in the gospel. But when these men from James arrive, something about them or something about what they said makes Peter falter. And Peter becomes afraid. So we keep taking notes here. Who is it that Peter became afraid of? Was he afraid of James? No, it doesn't say he's afraid of James and the men that came from James. He's afraid of those who belong to the circumcision group. Now these may be, and some people think they might be some of the men that came from James, although I don't think that's very likely because Peter, James, and John already agree on the gospel and what it means, and they agree with Paul. And we saw that last week. But they are probably this, this men of the circumcision group or these people of the circumcision group are probably an influential group still in Jerusalem. And, but some of James's message to Peter may have been nothing more than, look, Peter, word is getting back to that group in Jerusalem again that you are eating with Gentiles. You remember Acts chapter 11? He wouldn't have said that because you know, it wasn't Acts chapter 11 then. But do you remember that time when you came, you ate with Cornelius and then there was the tension here in Jerusalem? It's happening again, okay, Peter? So word is getting back from Antioch that you are eating with Gentiles again and it's not making your life any easier in Jerusalem. I know you have to come back and you're not making any friends here. You're not getting any more popular by your behavior in Antioch. Maybe that was the message. And Peter starts to think, hmm, maybe I've got to think about what I'm doing here. Or maybe Peter actually had friends who believed differently than him on this. They were still his friends in the church. They were still Jewish believers. He even saw them as Christian brothers. But they had a different stance on this issue of eating with Gentiles than he did. And he was embarrassed to find out that those friends of his who thought differently found out what was going on. I don't know. Something happened. And there's an application here for us as well. You know, do any of you have friends like that? You, you're really good friends with them or you even want to be good friends with them because you want to help them along in their faith and you know that they have really strong opinions or beliefs on certain things that you can't really support where they stand. And you're not, you're pretty sure that even Scripture and the Gospel can't really support where they stand. You know, they vote liberal or they vote conservative. Or they drink alcohol, or they don't drink alcohol, right? Or they're evolutionary creationists, or they're young earthers, or whatever it is. You know, you can't really support where they stand. You're not sure the scripture or the gospel really supports where they stand, but you're their friend, and you don't really want to offend them, and you're not ready to tackle that topic in their life just less, just yet, so you avoid it. You know, but then you get caught, right? You know, they, they catch you with a Trudeau lawn sign, right? Or they, or they see a post of you at a party on Facebook and you've got a beer in your hand and you know, oh no, now we're having the conversation, right? Now it's out, right? Or they catch you reading a Ken Ham book. It's an inside joke for young earthers. But, you know, you know you're busted, right? This friend has caught you and you're going to have to have this conversation. Now that's, those are kind of trivial examples, right? But now imagine that those friends of yours were a major force of opinion and culture in your church. Right, that they had influence with church leaders and with people in the church, and they could make your life difficult. And that's just a hint at maybe what Peter is going through, right? That Peter finds out that people are going to react to his eating with Gentiles back in Jerusalem, and he's got to go back sometime. But the truth of the gospel, Paul argues, has something directly to say about how we're meant to react to that fear. right? But these men came, and Peter changed his behavior and he changed his behavior out of fear of these men of the circumcision but there's more people here and this is where the crime really starts to take place 
This is the crime that Paul sees against the gospel. There's other Jews and Barnabas. Right? We also have other Jews present in Antioch. It was a mixed crowd, and some of them were probably ate together. You know, for both, you know, those Jewish people may have separated themselves even at the church suppers for ethnic reasons or dietary reasons, right? The kosher dietary laws, some of them may have been still coming out of their Judaism and into Christianity, and they were still struggling with where they stood on that. And so Paul was fine that, you know, I'm not going to cause another brother to stumble on what they may eat or drink, and that's fine depending on their maturity in the faith. But it got to the point that we have Barnabas as well, and we can pretty much count on him being another Jew who's very mature, and even Peter's behavior was starting to cause him to stumble and to be influenced. So that Barnabas was thinking of withdrawing from eating with the Gentiles in Antioch. And the significance of those groups in this crime scene is that now Peter has then started, what he has done is starting to spill over to affect the other Jews and even to Barnabas. Paul writes in verse 13, the other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. And so as as Paul deconstructs the scene of, of the crime, so to speak, he sees Peter falling apart. And as Peter is falling apart in his fear, he's starting to take innocent bystanders down with him. And Peter stops eating at the Gentile tables and starts sitting only with the Jewish people at the Jewish tables who are still eating kosher. And it's starting to affect the unity of the church. So that's the scene, right? The, the chalk outlines are on the ground. The police tape is kind of sealing it off. This is, this is what has happened. We've, we've deconstructed it. But what's the crime that's been committed here against the gospel? And why does Paul have it right in his assessment of it? What is Peter doing that the gospel says versus what the gospel's done and, and what the gospel would, would lead him to do? Well, first of all, I think Paul would say, Peter, it looks like you now want to live by your old dietary laws of the Old Testament, the old Jewish laws of what we eat and what we don't eat, instead of the truth of the gospel, which is that we're free from the law, that we've already settled the circumcision issue. Remember, we had that debate, and we settled that. And after settling circumcision, you want to stumble over shrimp and pork? Like, this is not a... I thought we had this settled. Peter, why do you want to go back and live by the old law that you've been set free from? The truth of the gospel is that we're free from that. But more importantly, Peter, as we dig deeper into what the gospel says, you're treating Gentiles as unclean. You're actually treating brothers and sisters in Christ as if they're unclean instead of living out the truth of the gospel that everyone is clean in Christ. I mean, there's been centuries of animosity between some of these cultures, between Jews and Samaritans, between Jews and Romans, between Jews and Medes, between the Jewish people and the Elamites. You know, Jesus, even, even Jesus alluded to Gentiles at one point as dogs in Matthew 15:26, And everybody knew exactly what Jesus was talking about when he made that allusion. But the gospel had finally broken down that wall of hostility and and they're eating together and then all of a sudden Peter won't eat with Gentile sinners anymore. And so Paul says the crime here against the gospel is you're actually treating brother and sister Christians as if they're unclean. How, Peter, does that stand up to the truth of the gospel? He says, Peter, you're rebuilding ethnic walls instead of living out the truth of the gospel of being a minister of reconciliation, it says in 2 Corinthians 5.18. Peter, the gospel you are living out 
that you are broadcasting by your actions says that Gentiles can be made a little more tolerable, but that somehow they're still second-class citizens. That's what your actions are preaching, Peter. Do you realize that? But the gospel we preach says that there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Paul's going to go on and say that in Galatians 3. And so Paul says there's been a crime against the gospel here, Peter, because the truth of the gospel is not what you're living out. The gospel points to Jesus hanging on the cross to reconcile us to God and says, how much is that Gentile believer worth? It's worth Jesus Christ dying on the cross. How much is that Samaritan woman worth? It's worth Christ on the cross. How much is that Pharisee worth? He's worth Christ on the cross. How much is a refugee worth? How much is a drunk worth? Exactly the same. How much does loving our enemies cost? It costs Christ dying on the cross. How much of your life should you lay down for others, Peter? The same as Jesus on the cross. That's how much. And Peter, your actions are not preaching that gospel. Your actions are preaching an entirely different gospel. And it doesn't end there. It says, and Peter, you're, you're influencing people into bondage instead of showing them the gospel of truth that they are free. It says in Galatians 5, 1, for freedom, Christ has set you free. You know, all this trouble that I have had, all these struggles that I have had with the Judaizers about circumcision and about following the law, about them wanting to drag people back into following the old law, you're not helping here, Peter. We're supposed to be preaching a gospel of freedom and you want to tie these people up with rules about how they're supposed to eat? Come on, Peter. What are you doing? And not only that, you're re-crucifying Christ instead of living out the truth of the gospel that you're crucified in Christ. The writer of Hebrews in verses 5, 12 through to 6, 5 is speaking to Christians. And in Hebrews, as he's writing, he's speaking to Christians having been set free by the gospel. And that those Christians, rather than moving on from that freedom that they've discovered in the gospel, from that basic principle of faith onto more mature matters of application of the gospel in their life, those young mature Christians are stumbling on the very basics of being free from the law. And the writer in Hebrews says in Hebrews 6.1, Therefore, let us leave the elementary teachings about Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that leads to death. But that's what Peter is doing. Paul is going back, or Peter is going back to the works of the law. And Paul is, is going to say, or would say, if he could point to Hebrews, he would say, you're, ju- you're, you're just re-crucifying Christ. It says in Hebrews 6.6, 6, to their loss, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. When you do not rely on faith and grace of the gospel for your justification and your salvation, the writer of Hebrews says you basically crucify Christ again. So Paul says, this is the crime, Peter. You're just re-crucifying Christ again because you're dragging people back to the most basic principle thing is that they're free from the law and you're not letting them escape from that. If you don't trust the gospel of grace that Jesus is sufficient and you try to work out your own justification before God, then Christ is on the cross again. 
And so, Peter, you're putting the weight of justification on the law or on your behavior rather than letting faith in Jesus bear the weight of your justification. And that's what we're going to talk about more next week. So, yeah, Paul's riled up. Like, Paul is excited about this because what Paul sees Peter doing in all these different cases are essentially crimes against the gospel in his eyes. And so we've photographed the scene, we've collected the evidence, we've interviewed the witnesses, we've replayed the events, and we can see now the violence that was done to the gospel by Peter's actions. Because it's not just about where you set your cafeteria tray down to eat. You might think that's insignificant, but everything that we do says something about the gospel that we believe. And that's what Paul is upset about here. That's the illustration that Paul is trying to make of this. This is why Paul has recorded for all time this argument between him and the apostle Peter. This is not a pretty scene. Nobody wants to see this. Everybody's just got their head down in their plate trying to ignore that it's going on. But Paul wants to illustrate here that it is important, not just what we believe about the gospel, but how we act out of what we believe the gospel says. And we can sometimes think that God only cares about the the big things, that God only cares about the big sins in our life or the the big stuff that everybody sees. But in this passage, we see that it's even what we think are the insignificant things that matter, right? It's who we sit next to on the bus. It's how we speak to the person that bags our groceries. It's the way that we engage in debates over politics. It's the things that we post on Facebook, right? Everything that we do is a potential testimony to the gospel that we believe in how we treat people. The truth of the gospel of grace is something that people can really struggle with. It's a wonderful paradox because the gospel of grace says that you are set free and that our sin is no longer counted against us. And at the same time, it says that, of course, even though your sin is no longer counted against you, you should, of course, not go on sinning. The gospel says that we're set free so that we can serve. The gospel says that we're unchained from having to follow the rules of the law, but that we are constrained to the law of Christ. That the law is no longer a set of rules that we have to follow like a checklist by the letter. Rather, the gospel is now something that transforms how we think and view the world and view others so that we willingly conform to its demands. The gospel influences our attitudes and our reactions to those around us. And the gospel sets us free from the letter of the old law, but constrains us to the law of Christ. And Paul sums this up in another verse that I'm going to finish on. In Romans 13.10, Paul talks about this law of Christ later in Galatians, and he talks about it here in Romans. He says, love does no harm to its neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. And that's what this comes down to. Paul's saying, Peter, you're not acting in a loving way. And so I know because you're not acting in a loving way, then you cannot be acting out of the law of Christ or out of the gospel that we both believe. Our actions, even the most superficial ones, should not over time consistently disagree with the good news that we proclaim. Instead, as we grow and we mature in our faith and our understanding of the good news of what Jesus Christ has done and everything that he has taught and the example that he has set us, all of our actions, even the seemingly insignificant actions, should reflect the good news of that gospel that is transforming us. And I titled the sermon, Living Out Love, because the gospel is the law of love. And it's really what Paul is saying to Peter. 
that what we both believe in is the truth or the good news of what Christ has done. And what we both believe in and agree in is the good news of what Christ has done is that he has died to set us free so that we can live now in love. And all of our actions should flow out of that love. That we've been transformed by and we're constrained by the truth of that good news. That everything we do, we do out of love. And whatever we do, no matter how insignificant we think it is, if it cannot come from love, then it's an offense against the gospel. And so that's the lesson for us. That's, that's why Paul preserved this for us. So that we could unpack this really ugly confrontation in the middle of the church and see that it's not just about what we believe, it's about how we act. And it's about how we act in everything. That how we act should be loving in every way and flows naturally out of the gospel, the good news of what Jesus did and taught us. Let's pray.